This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Gosh Pods Practicing Paediatrics, a series of educational podcasts brought to you by clinicians at Great Ormond Street Hospital, covering a variety of interesting topics in paediatric medicine. I'm Emma, the Digital Education Fellow and your host for today's podcast. And I'm joined today by Dr. Kushnima Mullenferos, who is a specialty doctor in the bone marrow transplant team at Great Ormond Street Hospital. So thank you so much, Kushnima, for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Could I just start by asking what you would like people to get out of this podcast today? Yeah, sure. So I think we'll divide this podcast into like two parts. Part one will basically be understanding the basic principles around pediatric bone marrow or blood and marrow transplants and the types of BMTs that are available and just the general principles and indications of when we do what. The second part will focus more on the actual transplant process. And by this, I mean the allogenic transplant process, its complications and what we would expect to follow up once the child has had the transplant. Fantastic. That sounds brilliant. So I guess transplant is something that most people will be familiar with the concept of. Most people will have heard of people having heart transplants or liver transplants, and that's a very familiar concept. Mm. And I guess bone marrow transplantation is a similar concept, but different in, in many ways from what people might traditionally think of as a transplant. So could you just talk to me a little bit about that and what we actually mean by a bone marrow transplant? Is it the same thing as having a heart transplant? I mean, I'm glad you got this up right at the start. So my parents being from a completely non-medical background, you know, until I moved to another country, my dad completely kept asking me, how is it that you transplant when you're not a surgeon? So I think the basic concept and the difference between a solid organ transplant and a bone marrow transplant lies with who does it or which team leads on it. So obviously, as you've said, you know, you've known people who've had heart transplants or liver transplants, and that's basically done by the surgeons where an organ from a cadaver or from a living donor is taken and put in the same place or in a different place in the body of a recipient. I'm no expert in solid organ transplant, so I won't waste too much time in this episode on that. But the point being that the longevity of the organ in a solid organ transplant is short-lived compared to blood and marrow transplant. So in the solid organ setting, I think, you know, the longevity might last about 10, 15, 20 years at the max. And the person has to be on lifelong immune suppression medicine so that their body doesn't reject that solid organ. Now, let's shift focus to, you know, bone marrow transplant or blood and marrow transplant, where once the graft goes in, and of course, there is chances of rejection and things not going right. But majority of the times when it goes in, it's lifelong. And the person or the recipient who gets the blood and marrow transplant can come off immune suppression, say, in six months to one year's time. So I think the fundamental difference is who leads on it and the longevity of the graft. Right. Okay. So the idea with a bone or bone and marrow transplant being that it will eventually be incorporated into the body and kind of recognized as belonging to that person rather than always being kind of somebody else's. Um, exactly exactly yeah. okay and sorry just to add here like i think for the whole episode the misnomer of bmt being bone marrow transplant needs to kind of be demystified so yes it started off as somebody picking up somebody's bone marrow and giving it to a recipient in an experimental setting way back in the 1930s and 40s 
but slowly it's evolved that you don't really always need bone marrow from the person. So you could take blood, you know, peripheral blood, you could take umbilical cord blood. So now the actual first form of BMT is actually blood and marrow transplant. So I think by default in most of our minds, BMT is bone marrow transplant. Even to me, I keep telling myself I'm a bone marrow transplant doctor, but actually, if you think about it, it should now be called blood and marrow transplant. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating and something I didn't know. And then on the same note, could I also ask, is it the same thing as stem cell transplant is another word that I've also heard used sometimes interchangeably. Are they the same thing or is it a different thing still? Yes, exactly. So they are the same thing in principle. So when we do a blood and marrow transplant, the main active ingredient of the whole process is the stem cells, because those are like the actual progenitor or the actual principal cells, which will divide, 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 differentiate, and then, you know, give rise to the person's whole bone marrow and blood. So I guess stem cell transplant is equal to hematopoietic stem cell transplant or called HSCT or blood and marrow transplant called BMT, you know, however you may like to call it. Okay, fantastic. I'm going to try really hard now to use the correct terms throughout the podcast so I don't need people. Thinking more about blood and marrow transplant, what are the different types that you can have? Yeah, so I mean, to categorize it into different types, of course, we can try and understand it as an autologous or an allogenic blood and marrow transplant. So to understand this difference, you can, in your head, try and make up who's the recipient and who's the donor. So let's call it R and let's call it D. And if the recipient is equal to donor, then it is autologous because the same person is getting his or her bone marrow or blood back for whatever reason. And when you call it allogenic, which means it's coming from somebody else, R is not equal to D. So there will be a different D, completely different probably from another family altogether or from the same family, giving their blood marrow or umbilical cord to the recipient. So that's the basic difference between allogenic and autologous transplant. Right. Okay. So an autologous transplant quite well I'm going to say it's simple it's probably not simple but you're taking the the donor cells from the same person which means that you've got the source there in front of you what are the indications for autologous transplant yeah so I mean yes I agree it is simpler than an allogenic transplant because obviously you're not involving two different people and trying to match them in you know all sorts of ways so from complication list probably it's different but it's not by any means simple an autologous transplant, of course, I'm talking only in the pediatric setting, is generally where you have to give a lot of chemotherapy or a lot of treatment such that the bone marrow is never going to regenerate in that child. So you've been so toxic for whatever reason. So if there is a tumor, suppose, which is not getting cured by conventional chemotherapy, say, or there is the tumor is spread all over the body and you need to you know, kind of blast the body with a lot of chemo and radiotherapy such that the bone marrow is just going to be short for all their life. So somebody very smartly thought of this and said, okay, before blasting the body, and if the blood is not being contaminated by the tumor cells, why don't we take some out, take care of, I mean, kind of isolate these stem cells or also called the CD34 cells, as we call it in the lab, and preserve them. Once the chemotherapy is gone and once the tumor has been all dissolved and kind of inverted commas cured, let's put this back so that their bone marrow regenerates. And having said that, I think it's easy to understand this because the tolerance of any human and especially children to chemotherapy or radiotherapy is the least for the bone marrow because it's one of those which is, you know, constantly dividing. And as you constantly divide, you can be affected by something that will stop you from dividing like chemotherapy. 
So the bone marrow will get affected, you know, not at the drop of a hat, but quicker than, say, the liver, the kidney, or any other organ getting affected by the same amount of chemo and radiotherapy. So coming back to the indications of autologous transplants in children, I'd say any high-risk tumors, which need a lot of chemo and radiotherapy, and then you just give the bone marrow back as regeneration. So that's autologous in the pediatric oncology setting. And the other new forte that has been developed is gene therapy, where I think autologous has done a fantastic job, where if there is a genetic problem in the bone marrow of the child, and you can bring out the stem cell from the bone marrow or from the blood of the child, take it to the lab, correct that gene in a certain way, and put those cells back into the blood so that it goes and deposits in their bone marrow and then start proliferating without the genetic condition, then that is another indication. So broadly speaking, solid tumors and gene therapy are two indications for autologous transplants. Right. Okay. So essentially in gene therapy, you're using it as a vector to get the correct version of the gene back into the body. Absolutely. Yes. So with, and just another point about autologous transplantation, presumably it can only be done, as you said, if the bone marrow has no disease in it. So actually isn't suitable for hematological malignancies. Um. In some sense, you're right. So in terms of hematological malignancies, you're right. We don't want a lot of tumor burden in the cells that you're preserving because you fear that you will give the disease back. In the solid organ transplant setting, also when the bone marrow is involved, there could be a possibility, you know, of course, this is case by case basis, that you could kind of separate the tumor cells out and take only the stem cells and preserve them. In the hematological setting, lymphomas, if you classify them as hematological malignancies, that is one place where autologous transplants can be done because the affection of the tumor or the malignancy in the bone marrow is not as much as at the other sides. And you just need to kind of regenerate the bone marrow. So you just need few stem cells to kind of go back and regenerate. So in some hematological malignancies, in summary, yes, you can. But in most others, probably not. Okay, that makes sense. Moving on now to think about allergenic transplantation, so where you're taking the donor cells from somebody else and D doesn't equal R, what are the indications for that type of transplant? Oh, so, I mean, I could fill a whole podcast on just trying to explain the indications of allergenic, you know, stem cell transplant or blood and marrow transplant in children. But to keep it short, I think the indications are expanding. And the whole process of bone marrow transplant started initially from the leukemia setting, where back in whatever the early 1900s, um, uh, a diagnosis of leukemia used to be a death sentence. The slowly chemotherapy came and radiotherapy came in. And then those who did not respond to conventional treatments went on to get bone marrow transplant. So if I have to divide the indications in children uh, for allergenic transplant, I'll probably say benign conditions and malignant conditions immunological conditions, metabolic conditions, and some rheumatological conditions. So under each of these, I mean, under the whole umbrella of transplant indications, there are so many subheadings. And of course, I can keep going on into, you know, subdividing them. But basically to understand wherever you think that the own bone marrow cannot go back and regenerate because the disease will come back. So when I mean disease, not only malignancy, any of the immunological, genetic, etc. will come back. There's no point doing it. And that's when you go to an allergenic and take healthy stem cells from somebody else and put it back into the kid. And at what point in the disease process do you tend to perform blood and marrow transplant? Is it kind of a last resort after all other options have been exhausted? Or actually, is there times when you might think about it sooner rather than later in a disease process? I mean, of course, you know, 
deciding when to do a transplant is a multidisciplinary discussion. And yes, we have our prototype cases or index cases where we would take them up early on. So say immunological conditions where you know they are immune deficiency is so severe that it's not going to recover with age. So something like this severe combined immunodeficiency, which now is actually being picked up by newborn screening in certain parts of the UK. So those kids will go into transplant, say, in the first few weeks of life, and you know that there is nothing much you can do. Other than, of course, experimentally, there are some gene therapies available for these genetic conditions, and then you go down the autologous route. Similarly, for metabolic conditions where you know they are brain development and overall development might be quite hampered if you keep waiting longer because you know that there is no curative option, then you go into transplant as an earlier age or at the time of diagnosis in those conditions. Now, coming to hematological conditions, benign and malignant, of course, there's a lot of work being done around, yes, you keep giving them options which are non-transplant. And then there are sometimes when you hit the wall and you say, you know, there are no further options now. So, yes, we have to go ahead with an allogenic transplant. And before I complete this or summarize this, the director or the first director of bone marrow transplant at Gosh, in all his teachings said, to become a good transplant physician, you should know when not to transplant just because it's such a toxic process that you don't want to cure the child of a disease that he had before and then give him another complication. And I'll come to that later, which is called graft versus host disease. And it's like a completely novel disease that you're setting into the child. So when not to transplant and when not to do harm is the most important thing to understand. Yeah, absolutely. So while when it's successful, it can be really quite life-changing. It's not something to be taken lightly. Exactly. Yeah. So I suppose one of the obvious issues with allogenic transplant is the need to find a suitable donor for the cells. What are the various potential sources for donor tissue? Yeah, so if I have to simplify this, most people will understand what a blood group matches, like, you know, I'm AB positive, for instance. So that's my genetic signature on my red blood cells. And if I have to get blood, then I should get it from an AB positive person, for instance. Similarly, in the blood and marrow transplant setting, I have a specific genetic signature, which resides on my chromosome number six. And from there, there are certain proteins that I kind of express in all my nucleated cells. And to match that, I can do a blood test called the HLA typing, which gives me my whole genetic signature. Initially, it started by looking at only three of those proteins. Then it started looking at six. Then it started looking at eight. Now we look at 10 and 12. So, you know, the more research going into it, more development happening. We're looking at more minute details so that we can match at the more minute level. And to find an R and D which match, we need an HLA type which matches. Right? So normally, it's understandable. People from the same family technically should more or less have the same signature. But that's not exactly true because you get half your genes from, you know, the maternal side, half from the paternal side. So even for siblings of the same family, there's a 25% chance that my attorney will completely match my siblings, actually, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. And does it have to be a perfect 100% match or can you accept less than 100%? So philosophically, there's nothing quite perfect. But in the blood and marrow transplant setting, yes, we match the etylene, which is also kind of matching the major histocompatibility signature. Now, if I've said major, obviously there should be a minor. 
So even within the same family, there could be minor differences in the histocompatibility or the HLA type, but we don't go down to that. Overall, we see if the HLA or the MHC is matching in the family or in an unrelated setting, then we just accept that. Of course, like I said, the way of doing it has changed a lot. So again, going back to my director's example that he's to keep giving us, that initially we used to look at the attorney like we were looking from a plane flying very high. So we could see, oh, there are people around. Then you come one level down and you look and say, oh, they're not just people. They are buildings and there is some other monuments. So that is another level of, you know, looking at the HLA more minutely. Then you come one more level down and then you say, no, it's not just that. It's a one city. And then as you land and as you're getting more and more perfect, you can minutely see the details. Oh, there is a park, there is a garden, there is a building, there is a person, you know. So you're trying to kind of look at each structure so nicely and hence be able to match it so perfectly. So we're not there yet, but yes, we're getting better at being able to understand who's the best owner. Right. Okay. So as you look at the HLA, at that kind of genetic signature in more detail, presumably it then becomes even harder to find a match though, because the more detail you have, the more difficult it becomes. Uh, I guess, I mean, genetic signatures have been the same in the human race all throughout, right? It's just the way we've been trying to look has changed. So I guess the genetic pool has always been available, but I guess we're making it more and more compartmentalized to say that, okay, probably say 50 years back, if we felt there were five donors available, now with our specialized testing, we might say that, yes, only one is the bent match, but yes, you could probably use the other three as well. Okay. So your best chance of finding a genetic match is presumably within the family. And you said a sibling is probably the best likelihood. But even then, it's only a 25% chance that they will be a genetic match. So then if the siblings aren't a match and there's no one within the, the family that's a match, how do you go about finding an unrelated donor? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that was for a long, long time, the biggest obstacle in allogenic blood and marrow transplant, because like you say, the pool is so little, 25% chance of finding somebody in the family. The pool probably marginally increases in those families that are consanguinously bred. So because their genetics is kind of inbred, there might be, say, 25 to 30% chance of finding a related uncle or an aunt or a cousin who might have the same genetic signature. So what happens to those who don't fall into this lucky inverted commas 30%? That's when worldwide registry started coming up. So similar to the concept of having blood banks, right? Because you wouldn't get blood from the same family most of the times, and you shouldn't actually take blood from the same family. But similar to a blood bank or a transfusion medicine center, worldwide registries where they started typing or keeping records or people's genetic signatures started expanding. and now at least in the UK and probably also in the US, unrelated transplants or unrelated transplant donor is become the most common donor available or used for most transplants now. Right. So actually, now we've got such an extensive registry, you're more likely to find somebody within the bank than you are within your own family. That's right. And, you know, we've done transplants in the UK for children who've got donors sitting worldwide and it's just a matter of time where everybody will be typed, hopefully. And of course, this is voluntary to go in and give your blood sample and, you know, sign up to be on the registry. But the more and more people sign up, the more the pool will be available. And so when it comes to finding a suitable donor, you mentioned the HLA as being the genetic signature. 
Is that the only thing that has to match or are there other components of the matching that need to be considered as well? Hmm. So that's a very good question because as more and more people are going into the registry as voluntary donors, there might be a possibility that you might have a suitable HNA type for a child and multiple such donors. So then how do you pick which one you should use? In that setting, I think probably that's an algorithm or a hierarchy of what else you look at. And I think as a priority after the HNA, you would look at the CMV or the cytomegalovirus status of the patient, or the recipient and the donor. And you try and match that as far as possible, which means has the recipient had CMV infection in the past and is he or she having some immunity and the donor similarly. And then you try and match that. The other thing would be the age of the donor. Increasingly, we've realized that the older the donor, the more antigens they've seen in their lives and probably hence their T cells are more active and hence will cause more GDHD going forward. So um, the younger the donor, the better it is. And sex mismatch in a certain setting. So especially female cells or a female donor giving cells to a male recipient increases the risk of GBHD. And hence there are certain times when we say, oh, you might have a male and a female donor for a male recipient. Why don't I just pick a male donor because the risk of GBHD is much lesser if that's what you intend to do with the transplant and not give GBHD to the child, which I'll talk about later. Right. Okay. So the HLA is the important one in determining if someone's a match. But if you've got lots of potential matches, there are other things that you can look at to make the match kind of as perfect as possible. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. I was also wanting to talk a bit about the different types of stem cell you can take because you can take bone marrow. You can also take peripheral blood stem cells. Is that right? And I've also heard of them taking stem cells from the umbilical cord. So are they all as good as each other or are there different types that you need? Can you just explain that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So we call these the graft sources. When you go ahead and classify these and stem cells coming from the bone marrow or the peripheral blood or say the umbilical cord. So the graft could come from, like we said, from the family or from an unrelated donor. And you could take it either from putting the person under general anesthesia and removing enough bone marrow to be able to give to the recipient. Or you could stimulate the person's bone marrow through an injection such that the stem cells from the bone marrow start pumping out into the blood. And then you can put the person through a phoresis or kind of separate their blood in a very controlled manner such that only the stem cells are collected and all the other parts of the blood is given back to the donor. And then you take that stem cells and then you can put it back into the recipient. So that's peripheral blood stem cell transplant. And thirdly, like you said, umbilical cord. So when the couple is pregnant, they can sign up. And this is, again, in the unrelated donor registry setting. They can sign up and the umbilical cord will be in a controlled fashion, collected, stored and shipped down to the registry such that when that uh, umbilical cord genetic signature matches a person in need, they can ship it to the transplant center. So, yes, these are the three graft sources available. And are all three graft sources as good as each other? Or mm -hmm. is there one that's better than others? That is a question I might not be able to answer in a binary fashion, yes or no. I'll take the time here to kind of simplify the whole transplant process and equate it to, say, cooking or gardening. Because like you might have understood by now, it's, it's not as simple as, okay, I've got a fever, I take paracetamol and get better. 
There's a lot that goes on into this. So if you think of it as cooking, you need to get the right ingredients. And here the ingredients are the ground source, how you're going to prepare the meal. So how are you going to prepare the recipient for the process? And then how are you going to season it and look after it afterwards? Similarly, if I kind of explain it from a gardening setting, it's like you want to create space in the ground. So you give something to the recipient such that the ground becomes clear. Then you put the seeds, which are the stem cells. Then you wait for the plants and the seeds and, you know, the fruits and everything to grow out of that. So I wouldn't say I can tell you which one is better by default from a graft source setting. It depends a lot on the indication you're going in for transplant. It depends on what the, say, the size differences or the weight differences between the donor and the recipient. What is the conditioning or what is the preparative regimen you're going to give the recipient and hence what source you think is going to take up in the recipient. So in different settings and in different indications, I'd say each one has its own merits and demerits. Right. Okay. But it needs to be kind of explored on a case-by-case basis. It's individualized to that patient pretty much. Yes. Individualized to the patient. And obviously, as we've done more and more transplants, not just in the UK, but worldwide, and more and more data comes in and literature is available. Of course, we kind of have a uh, stereotype thinking that if it is a disease, then I'll go ahead with a source and I will go ahead with a preparative regimen. Similarly, if it's a benign condition, for instance, then I'll go with definitely bone marrow and I'll come to that why and, you know, say I will use this kind of a preparative regimen. So you have a recipe book available, but you will obviously season it differently as per your taste. Right. Okay. Yeah, I really like that that cooking and the gardening analogy. It makes a lot of sense to me. That's been a really interesting overview of everything up to the transplant. So I think a really good way to finish the first part of this two-part episode today And then in the second part, we can explore a little bit more about the actual process itself. So the actual cooking of the food or planting of the new plant, to use your metaphors there. So, yeah, thank you very much for speaking to me today. I look forward to part two. Perfecto. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gosh Pods. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.